0: So, we're back in Revelation. Uh, we're in the dead center of the book. This is the part of Revelation that a lot of pastors skip over uh, because it's so hard to interpret and it's frankly hard to preach on. But I want to tell you why we're the kind of church that doesn't skip over parts of the Bible, okay? Uh, first of all, if you start skipping over the Bible, you become what I call like a cafeteria Christian. It's like you're going, and you're like, I'll take that, but not that. I'll take that, but not that. I'll take that. And when you do that, you actually end up with a faith that is self-informed. You become your own God, in a sense. You, you, you're the one deciding what's God's word in that case. It's a dangerous place to find yourself. Huh? If we wanna take out Revelation 12, then some people might, might wanna take out John 3, or Romans 8, or Psalm 23. So we don't wanna take out parts of the Bible, we want to keep them in there, and I'm gonna do my best uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit to explain to you what this passage means. There's another reason why it's important to preach on passages like this one, Revelation 12. And it's because it speaks to us about what's going on in our lives today. Once we understand it and kind of in- interpret it, it talks about where we're living right now. Many theologians have called the way that the kingdom of God is coming in the world through Jesus Christ. They've, they've called it a mix of the already and the not yet. Let me explain that to you. In some ways, because Christ has already come in his first coming, so many aspects of the kingdom of God are already ours in Christ Jesus. Christ has died for our sin. He's been raised from the dead. He's now been ascended to heaven. He's reigning at the right hand of God. And so the kingdom of God in many ways has already come through Jesus. But there are also aspects of the kingdom of God and the way that it's coming and that it is not yet fully come. And that's why we experience persecution in the world, as clear, prayed about for our brothers and sisters around the world in these nations that are facing persecution. That's why you experience and I experience suffering in this world still. That's why we still face temptation from Satan. In some ways, Christ's rule has already come. In other ways, his full and final rule has not yet come. He is both really ruling now, it's a real rule, And he's also restraining the fullness of his rule in this period of time so that many can still hear the gospel and come to know him. And so that you and I can hold on to our faith and be sanctified and grow in grace. This passage speaks to some aspects that are already ours in Christ Jesus. It also speaks to other aspects that are not yet fully realized in our lives. That's why we're still waiting in the wilderness as Christians. There's another reason why people might skip over this chapter or chapters like It's because it talks about spiritual warfare. It talks about the great war. Spiritual warfare is a topic that we've heard talked about before. Uh, but we've also been potentially um, hurt by teaching. Or confused by teaching that has happened to us throughout our lives. Or we find it so complicated that we just don't want to go there and we just don't know how to understand it, so we pass it by. I think that's a mistake, but, but many of us have been hurt by incomplete or unclear or even wrong teaching in this area. Uh, I grew up in a Pentecostal family, just to tell a story about how this has impacted me. When I was about 20 years old, I broke up with my girlfriend. Um, she was not, le- I just started walking with Christ. She was not going to lead me in the right direction, and so I broke up with her. And after we broke up, I got really depressed. Uh, you know, just thinking, you know, where's my life heading? Am I ever going to find someone that I care about again? And all the all the normal things that you go through when you break up with someone. But I got really depressed, and I was having an extremely hard time. My mother was very concerned about me, and so she started trying to figure out what was going on. And she got advice from her pastor that I was probably being attacked by demons, and that was really the problem. It was a spiritual warfare problem. And if we didn't address the spiritual warfare problem, then, you know, I was never potentially going to get out of this depression. And so she became convinced that there was this one t-shirt that my ex-girlfriend had given me. Now, granted, it wasn't a great t-shirt. It was from a Halloween party we went through. On the t-shirt, it said, Witches Brew. And so she decided that this had backed up the theory of the pastor, that I was indeed being attacked by demons. And somehow the demons were attached to the t shirt And so she was convinced, utterly convinced, that we had to burn the shirt along with the rest of my rock CD collection so that we could get rid of the demons that were attacking me because I was depressed. Now, granted, it's not a great shirt. You know, burning the shirt, maybe it was cathartic and even a bit helpful for me to burn that shirt. But this is kind of how we behave as Christians sometimes when we get into the realm of spiritual warfare. It's like we're in Stranger Things. We don't know what's going on, you know, the Netflix series. And it's like we, we sense an evil presence and we just like get a gun out and start firing it into the darkness hoping that something happens that's good. You know, we pick a random scripture here, a random scripture there, put it all together, say a prayer, and just really hope something works out for us in the spiritual realms. I think there's a better way. And it's incumbent upon us as a church and the church to teach on spiritual warfare so that we both understand what's happening in the war and we can live in light of our place in the war, live more effectively as Christians in this way. So this passage teaches us about spiritual warfare. It does, first of all, very helpfully broadly paint what is called the meta-narrative of the war. What is happening in the war? Who are the players? Who are the characters? What are the acts or the sequences that are happening in the war? I'll explain some of that to you from Revelation 12. And then it also gets very practical. How do we live as Christians in the midst of the war that we're facing, okay? So the first two points this morning have to do with painting the big picture The last point has to do with living practically in the war. All right, the first point this morning is that in in this passage, which is difficult to interpret, but I'll do my best to help you out here, there are three characters, three main characters, the woman, the child, and the dragon. If you can understand who they are, then you can unlock more of the meaning that's happening in the passage. So first of all, the woman. Who is the woman? She's introduced for us in verse 1. Well, she could be Mary. that's one interpretation that's been given before uh, that's not a not a bad view, but I think the better view of who the woman is is that the woman is probably the church that Mary through the Messiah gives birth to A couple of reasons for that in the Old Testament uh, Israel is described as a mother who is giving birth twice in Isaiah in twenty six seventeen and in sixty six verse six so I think the best reason though to go with the woman as representing the church though is found in the last verse of the passage where it refers to the rest of the offspring of the woman with whom the dragon makes war. So this would lend us to interpret that the woman is the church. It is the the spiritual offspring of Mary through the Messiah. So when you read the woman in the passage, you need to think of the church of Jesus Christ, the people of God. The second main character in this chapter is the child. Now surely the child is Jesus because in verse 5 it says that the child will rule the nations with a rod of iron. This is almost an exact quote from Psalm 2 where the son of God, the son in the passage, is given a rod of iron that he will use to bring the nations to judgment. So when you read the child, if you can understand the child as being Jesus, it will also help you unlock what John is saying to us through this apocalyptic vision. Then finally, the dragon. The dragon is clearly identified in verse 9 as being Satan. He's also called the serpent. These are metaphorical references to Satan or the devil himself. But the the vision is more complicated than just describing Satan. Because in verse 3, it says that this dragon has... Seven heads, ten horns, and on his heads are seven diadems. The number seven in Revelation we know means completeness, and crowns or diadems refer to rule. Horns also refer to rule. So, what we probably have here is not just a reference to Satan, but a reference to the way Satan works in the world through the kingdoms of this world. It's not exactly seven. There's some number, there's some complete number of, of leaders and kingdoms, kings and kingdoms that Satan is working through to accomplish what he wants to see happening in the world. We often think of, uh, when we think of spiritual warfare, we think of Satan almost unilaterally impacting us directly. That can happen, but I think that most often what's happening is that Satan is influencing other people in the world to do evil, and we experience that. Or Satan is influencing other demons in the demonic, you know, the spiritual warfare level of the world, that then they impact us. Um, And so what we find here is that the, the description is that Satan works in the hearts of kings and rulers to shape the world with his devilish influence. The Old Testament describes this in many different places. Daniel 7 is probably the most well-known where Jesus, as the ancient of days, all these prophecies refer to Jesus as the son of man. He descends on the earth and when he comes as the ancient of days, he comes to bring his kingdom. And how does he do it? He does it by undoing the rule of all of the evil rulers and kings that Satan has influenced in the world. See, Satan often works his bidding in the world through evil empires, evil kings, evil rulers, evil leaders, evil people, people who unknowingly, usually, are influenced by him. One very clear biblical uh, reference to this is actually in Daniel 8, which comes right after Daniel 7. In verse 10, there's a direct uh, correlation between Daniel 8, in Revelation 12, 4, okay, where it says that its tail, the dragon's tail, swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. That's a direct quote from Daniel 8. And in Daniel 8, what's happening is is the undoing of all of these evil kingdoms that have come on the world through Christ in Daniel 7, who is the Ancient of Days. If you read Daniel 8, I know there's a lot of content here, okay? There's a lot of content here this morning. You're going to have to really think hard. If you didn't come here this morning to think hard, okay, if church is a place where you have grown up and you've thought, I actually don't have to think at church. I have to think at work. I have to think when I'm talking to my parents. I have to think when I'm doing all these things. But I don't have to think at church. Then think again, all right? You're going to have to think again. This is a passage that is going to require your full intellectual attention this morning, all right? So, Daniel 8 is a prophecy in different parts. It's a prophecy of the Antichrist who will come. You've heard that word when people talk about end times. The Antichrist is, is said to come and he will desecrate the temple of God. And how will he do it? He will come in and he will offer uh, evil or impure sacrifices on the altar. All right, I'm going to have a point here in just a second. Listen to this. In the third century, there was a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes who literally came in and he offered pig sacrifices on the altar of God in the temple. And Daniel 8 is all about how Christ is going to undo the power of people like Antiochus Epiphanes. He's a historical figure in history. My point is that Satan was working through Antiochus and he is still working through people today, these evil kingdoms in the world. Part of what Christ will do is he will come, and when he comes again, he will completely end all of the evil rule that is in the world that is actually done knowingly or unknowingly in Satan's name. So when you look out at evil rulers in our world today and what they're doing, how do you look through that lens? What are people doing to the image of God created in God's image? Who is desecrating the image of God? That is not God's will. That is not God's way. Who is desecrating, who is persecuting the church of God? Which evil rulers are behind that? When the ancient of days comes, when he comes, when the child comes again, he will make war with the dragon and he will end all of the evil. All of the evil in the world that is being done through his influence. And so, When you think about the way Satan works or the dragon works in the passage, he's not just unilaterally going after you. He's influencing the world in the direction of evil. So there's the three players, the three characters. Second of all, let's look at the three acts. So if we understand the characters, now we need to understand how this war unfolds in the chapter. Okay? How does the war unfold? Fortunately for us, this actually happens sequentially through the passage. So we can start at the beginning and end at the end, all right? So the first act in the war is the coming of Jesus, the first coming of Jesus in verses 1 through 6. So act 1 reveals the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Greg Beale is a well-known theologian, especially for his work in Revelation. He talks about verses 1 through 6 as an example of what he calls temporal telescoping. What that means is that throughout this passage, In six verses, what you have is you have a a look at or a look in on different aspects of the Messiah's work or Jesus' work throughout his life. It's not necessarily walking verse by verse through that, but you have different looks at who Jesus is and what he did in the first coming, okay? So verses one through six. Verse three and four are about the waiting that happened in the Old Testament for the Messiah. Verses three and four Talk about how Satan or the dragon in the Old Testament period was trying to kill the people of God. He was trying to kill the people of God so that what's his main aim in all that he was working in the Old Testament? It's so that the Messiah would not come. Because he knew the Messiah was coming from Israel. The big thing is he wants to avoid Jesus coming. And then his birth... Jesus' birth in verse 2, it describes the birth of Jesus where Mary is in labor pains and she gives birth to a human boy who is the child. And then in his early days, we see that in verse 4, there's a reference to um, the way that the, the dragon wanted to devour the child. In Jesus' early days, if you remember when he was born in Bethlehem, Herod found out about it. Again, another evil ruler, clearly doing Satan's bidding, what could be more aligned with the heart of Satan than killing Jesus, right? And so he's going after the babies, going after the babies in Bethlehem. Then we look at verse 4, we also have the cross. It's a, it's a picture of the cross where Satan for a moment gets his dream fulfilled. His great endgame was seeing Jesus crucified. Surely he thought at this moment that he had devoured the child, that he had devoured the Messiah on the cross. This was Satan's great goal of history, the death of the Redeemer, so that we would all die too. But then in the the, the last part in, in verse five, you find that the child is caught up to God and to his throne. It kind of skips over like the word resurrection, but there's an implication that the child is alive And the child then gets raised up into heaven. As we think about what's happening here in this passage, this is not something we normally might think about. It almost comes across like an anime episode or something like that, right? But it's these visual pictures of what is happening. The child dies. The dragon feels like he's winning. And then the child is swept up into heaven by God to the throne of God. And Satan then realizes that if the child is with, God in heaven, then he's lost. He's lost the war. So that's act one. It's the coming of Jesus and all that Jesus brought into the world. The second act in the war is the defeat of Satan. You find that in verses 7 through 12. So on the first reading of this section, you might have been thinking about uh, the, the early history where Satan and the angels mysteriously, Satan and God fought and Michael against Satan, and then Satan fell out of heaven, okay? I think there is some vague reference to that, but I think the better way of understanding what's happening here to Satan is not to put it at the beginning of human history, but to put it after the first coming of Jesus. What happens to Satan after act one? After Jesus is swept up into heaven after dying on the cross? What happens to Satan? So that's where we are in history, when we're talking about Satan here. So passages, if you know the Bible, you know like Job 1, it seems to indicate that Satan, before the coming of Christ, could go before God the Father and could accuse us. He accused Job to God and had some kind of conversation with God about how can he go wreak havoc on Job's life to see what Job would do, okay? What is happening here? in this section, is that Satan's access to God in heaven to accuse us before God is now over. Satan can no longer accuse us before God. He can no longer accuse the church before God if we are in Christ and we put our faith in him. According to verse 8, there is no place any longer in heaven for Satan. He has been thrown down to the earth. Why is his access now denied in heaven? His key card no longer works to get in there because of verse 10. It says now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ has come. So this is speaking to the already nature of our salvation. Where, where do you live in Christ right now? You already are in a situation where when Satan accuses you or accuses the church before God, God, there is no access for him. There is no power in that message. He is called the accuser of the brethren. He's called the father of lies. When he speaks to God about you, God is no longer interested in anything that he says. Why? Because Christ has already died and accomplished salvation for us. Christ's death on the cross renders any accusation against the church powerless. The atonement means, the atonement of Jesus for your sins means that when God looks at you, he looks at the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. So that in heaven, where, that represents ultimate reality, when God hears any accusation about you, he does not listen to it. Instead, he looks at his son who is next to him, the slain lamb who has shed his blood for sinners. It says here in, in the passage, it says that Christ, the, the salvation has come because they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. The blood of Christ, the fountain that flows from him, has so covered you. You are so covered by him. Your identity is so secure in him that no longer, if there's any accusation that comes from Satan, think about the sins that you commit. The sins that you're guilty of, that you've, you've committed in your life. The sins that you might have committed today. When Satan goes before the Lord God Almighty and accuses you, and he says, look at how guilty and vile this person is. God the Father instead looks at Christ the Son, and he looks at you through Christ, and he does not listen to the accusation. Your identity is one who is forgiven. Satan's accusation is now meritless. If you think about the Old Testament plague, where the plague of death, the angel of darkness was going around in the village. And the only way to avoid death was to plead the blood of the lamb over your houses and over your gates. And as the blood of the lamb was pled, that slain lamb, that lamb that was slain that then they went and ate the lamb, it's a picture of communion, But as the lamb is slain and as the blood is on the gates, what happens? The death passes by. That is the same picture here. The death is going by. Accusation is coming. What is going to happen? God looks at the blood. And if you have the blood of Christ over your life, then the accusation will not not land in your life. The verdict, the good news of the gospel is that the verdict in heaven is already in. And you are forgiven. You are made righteous in Christ. There's nothing that you need to do other than believe in Christ to make yourself accepted in heaven. The verdict is in, and you are, you are with God. You are forgiven. You are righteous. Satan is defeated. Tim Chester, who has a great commentary on Revelation, very readable He says this the church is viewed from the perspective of heaven. So God looks at the church from the perspective of heaven, and she is glorious. She is glorious in his sight. But the deal is also this so even though this has happened in the heavens, Satan is still on earth with us. He has been cast out of heaven, and he is on the earth. This is where we get into some of the not yet of the war. Though the battle is won in heaven, It is not fully one here on earth. It says there in verse 12 that the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Satan realizes that what has happened in the heavens will one day happen on the earth. That time has not yet come where God has brought what is true in the heavens all the way true on the earth, but Satan knows his time is short. And this is the, on the earth is the realm where spiritual warfare is still happening. But for those of us here on earth, we have to realize that though what's happened for us in the heavens is secure and that 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 wins the day, on earth we are still fighting in a spiritual battle. We're fighting in a spiritual war. I think one of the biggest problems for the church is that we don't think about that very often. We even though Jesus regularly, he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He cast out demons, and like almost every other page of th- when you read the Gospel of Mark, you can't go a page without a, a demon being cast out of someone. It's it's all over the New Testament. Paul, the paradigm that he set for his earthly menis- for his ministry was, I am warring not against flesh and blood, but against the evil and the rulers of this dark world and the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. So if Paul and Jesus had a view of ministry that incorporated spiritual warfare, we should too. We should too. But one of the problems for the church is that we don't like to think about spiritual war. We don't know how. And so what we do is we just go, well, I guess I'll just act like I'm not in a war. C.S. Lewis speaks about that in the Screw Tape Letters where he tells the tale of a master demon teaching a younger demon Uh, in training, and the demon in training is called screw tape. In one section, the older, wiser demon encourages the younger demon in training to learn a strategy that has paid great dividends for demons for many years. The strategy is this, make every attempt to convince them that you don't really exist. If you can operate in the dark, then you can have great freedom and power over them. So Satan is strategic. In Luke 4.13, when he had finished tempting Jesus, it says he left Jesus until an opportune time. An opportune time. So Satan is strategic about how he's going to tempt you. Do you ever wonder why you have your worst fights on Saturday nights or Sunday mornings? As a couple, maybe with your kids. Why are the worst conversations with your wife almost always when it's late at night? Why are you more tempted to lust when you live in isolation from other people? people. These aren't just coincidences. It's not just because you're tired. It's not just because you're isolated. That, that's a problem, maybe. But it's also because Satan knows that that's an opportune time. It's, he knows when you're less vigilant, when you're more open to attack. And he loves to tempt God's people. He knows when we're tired or stressed or lonely or hungry or self-righteous he knows when we're doubting his existence or maybe God's existence, he knows it's an opportune time, and we should be aware of his schemes. So that's the devil. I mean, he has been defeated, but he is not yet fully and finally defeated on earth, and we are still warring with him. The final aspect of the, these acts as they play out, Act 1 was the coming of Jesus. Act 2 is the defeat of Satan Act 3 is the warfare of the church, and we're already getting into that a little bit. But in verses 13 through 17, it describes the warfare of the church. There are two important things to realize from this section. It describes, first of all, the church in the wilderness. The best way to understand this section is to see the church as a people who are wandering in the wilderness. Think about the children of Israel. The children of Israel, when they were saved, that moment that they were saved is when? It's in the Exodus. That's the moment that signifies their salvation as a people. They're being chased. They go through the Red Sea. God amazingly parts the Red Sea. It's called the Exodus. God destroys their enemies, and then they are saved. Now, what were they saved to? Did they immediately enter into the promised land? No. No. They entered into the wilderness. And you're like, what kind of a salvation is that? I thought that they were, it was done. No, it's, it's not done. Yes, your salvation is secure. You are saved. But you have to journey through the wilderness to get to the promised land. This is an intentional biblical image for also what Christ does for us as his people. We are saved truly through the cross, through the ascension, through the resurrection. And we are saved to what? Yes, we are going to be in the promised land one day, but we are saved into what? We are saved into the wilderness. We are still in this world. We are still wandering here on earth. On the other side of the Red Sea was the wilderness, and on the other side of the cross is also the wilderness. And what you find here in this section is a lot of wilderness images. You find Satan has been thrown to earth. He's now pursuing the church and Satan in the wilderness is pursuing us but look with me at verse 14 it says that God gives us eagles wings so that we can fly away from danger this is a direct quote almost from Exodus in 19:4 where it says you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how, how I carried you away on eagles wings so even though in the wilderness we are being attacked God is fighting for us, and he is providing opportunities for us to be carried away as we trust in the gospel, as we pray, as we live in community. I'll I'll get into some more of that in just a minute. How does God carry us on eagles' wings? And the second aspect of this section that you need to know and need to understand is that the wilderness season lasts for longer than we might think. Okay, so you're in the wilderness, you're like, for how long? Just for a few days, a few weeks, a few years. Uh, No, actually it says, it's an interesting, difficult reference maybe for us to translate. But it says, we're there for a time, times, and half a time at the end of verse 14. Also in verse 6, it says that uh, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared prepared for by God, where she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Okay, so what do we do with these time references? Well, I think if you take it, if you take the 1,260 days and you take the, the time, times, and half a time, if you take the time as a year, you basically have 42 months. Okay, you basically have a 42-month period. And that also corresponds to Israel. If you want to get technical about it, if I asked you the question, how long did Israel wander in the wilderness, you'd say 40 years. That's technically correct, but it's not completely correct. Because actually, they had already been in the wilderness for two years, when God told them that they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. So they actually wandered for 42 years, technically. So this is a direct reference to the wilderness period. Now, we don't need to be weird about it, like some people can get, where you go around searching for 42-month periods of time that directly correlate in our time to this time. That's really not helpful. I think the best way to interpret this is not literally, but to say that the time lasts longer than you think it should. You're going to be in the wilderness for longer than you want to be. It's not fun. It's tough when you're in the wilderness. But God provides. God provides for us in the wilderness. How long, O Lord, is a song we sing in the wilderness? Because it goes on for longer than we want it to. Verse 16. It's an inhospitable ecosystem. All right? There are so many examples. I could look, you know, we could talk about this whole idea of the flood coming out of the mouth of the serpent and all that. Essentially, whenever there's a flood in the Bible, it's bad, right? And so there's all these things that are happening in our lives. that are like floods. But what does God do? He causes the earth here in this passage, which he is ruling over, to swallow up the flood. Essentially, what's that mean? It's through his providence and provision. God doesn't allow Satan to destroy his church. Through persecution, through evil, through danger, he's not going to let Satan win. Even though it goes on for longer than we want it to, the Lord is going to provide and does provide always for the church. But each time God provides, verse seventeen tells us it enrages Satan even more. And so, what do we do with all this? Three responses. Three responses of how how to live in the war. First response. You need to rejoice in the victory of the blood. You need to rejoice in the victory of the blood. There's only one imperative in this entire passage. The rest is narrative and anime and all these apocalyptic visions, all right? There's one imperative. And it is found, it is found in verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them rejoice therefore rejoice the child has come he's defeated the dragon the christ has come in the first act of the war he has defeated satan and he is bringing his rule on earth through the church christ has won christ has paid the penalty for your sin it looked like satan was going to win when he killed the child it was his great mission of all time but he didn't see the right hook of the resurrection coming where Christ just knocked him out forever. He didn't see it coming. Christ was raised. And so through Christ, we have victory through the blood of the lamb. We can rejoice in the middle of the war. Imagine if you were living in England, let's say London in 1944, and you heard that the troops were advancing on Berlin, the allied forces you would rejoice, would you not? The Nazis hadn't fully been defeated, and you weren't actually there fighting the Nazis in Germany. But in London, you should rejoice. Why? Because your victory is being accomplished by representatives on your behalf who are winning the war. You should rejoice. You have every right to rejoice. Even though you personally didn't fight, in *The Lord of the Rings*, only some of the characters fight, but in the Shire where the hobbits lived, in Lothlorien where the elves lived, in the Iron Hills or the Blue Mountains where the Dwarves lived, and all the other lands too, even if you weren't part of the band that was advancing, your success or failure was wrapped up in them, whether or not you even knew it. It was either they were going to win and you were going to win, or they were going to lose and you were going to lose. And so you have every right to rejoice in the shire if they win, even though you weren't there as part of the band. It's similar for us. We rejoice not because we do the work. We don't defeat Satan, but Satan was defeated by Christ. He is our representative. He wins the war. He is winning the war, and our lives are wrapped up in him. And so we should rejoice We should rejoice that he has won. He has defeated Satan. He has won the battle. The blood of the Lamb has conquered. So you should rejoice. The second thing you should do is you should make Jesus' blood your testimony. It should be your testimony. Normally, when we think about our testimony, which is a fine way to talk about it, we talk about telling the story of our personal faith, the journey that we went on, and how we became Christians. That's a great way to think about testimony. There's another important way to think about testimony, and that's the way this passage talks about testimony. And it's this way if you are on the witness stand, you are giving your testimony. And when you are asked the question personally, what do you think about Jesus Christ? And you say, Jesus Christ is my Savior. He died for me. I live in Him. That is your testimony. If that is your testimony, then you are conquering through the blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb is your testimony. And, and, and actually going back to the other way we think about testimony, the most important part of everybody's testimony, just so you know, when you're given your testimony, it's not about you. It's not about your story of faith. And then you kind of tack on some Jesus somewhere in there. No, you have no story of faith without Jesus and what he already accomplished for you on the cross. So what Christ did in your story, him being your story, your testimony, his blood was for me. That is that is the, the core of our testimony. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. The blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. This is what saves us from the power of Satan, death and hell. And the final thing we need to think of, and I'll close with this, is what do we need to do after that? After we after Christ has spilled his blood, and after we say, that's my testimony, what next? You just need to hold on to that until the end. That's it. Whether your end is soon or far from now, whether your life is cut short from our perspective because of persecution or illness, whether you live a long life, your call as a Christian is to hold on to the gospel Hold on to the blood of the lamb and to this testimony until the very end. Your call is to not shrink back, to not love your lives more, to not shrink back even in death, to not love your life more than Christ. Love Christ more than whatever is happening in your life and be faithful all the way until the end. The good news is, there's all kinds of other passages in Scripture that show us even as we are called to hold on to Christ, Christ is also holding on to us. We're not, it's not just up to us. You can't lose your salvation once you have it. You are going to be faithful to the end. And you need to endeavor to be so Christ will hold you. Christ will hold you fast if you are already in him. So we need to, the big message here, if you, if you just got lost somewhere, and you're going to be like, I got to go back and listen to that one, or I don't know. Here's the big message, all right? Thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. That's what we're going to sing next, okay? Thank you, Jesus, for the blood. That's it. Rejoice in the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ, the spilled blood of the child, wins the story. He is currently enthroned at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And what is true in the heavens will be true on the earth soon enough. So just hold on, hold on to your faith, hold fast to the end. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. Let me pray. Lord, sometimes your word surprises us. A complicated passage like this, we... We wonder what we can find in it, and then when we get into it, we find that the gospel is so clearly proclaimed in the midst of it that it just blows us away at how your mind works and how you are far beyond us. You're mysterious to us, but you also have revealed yourself so clearly to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would humble ourselves before you, our God and King, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the blood. We thank you that you were obedient to the Father, that you came and in the fury of Satan, that you conquered and you became our king. We thank you that you are conquering. We can find joy in your conquering. I pray that we would this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.